All right, if you got your Bible open to Mark chapter 8, last week we covered 30 verses, this week we're covering three. Some days it'll just be like that. All right, this morning we are looking at the idea of expectations. Expectations are powerful things. They are. Expectations, one of the first things that I talk about in uh, pre-marriage counseling, if I'm sitting down with a couple who's wanting to get married, married, one of the first things we talk about is expectations. What are you expecting out of this relationship? What are your expectations of what your spouse is going to do and how they're going to treat you? And What are those expectations? Because expectations are powerful and influential things. And one of the reasons is because unmet expectations can leave us hurt and disillusioned. One of the major issues that you see in, in marriages that, that are having troubles is because expectations are not being met. If you have a job, your boss has expectations on you. If you do not satisfy those expectations, then there's going to be problems with your boss and with that job. If you get caught speeding, you and that officer have different expectations. He expected you to obey the, the speed limit. You expected to get somewhere a whole lot faster than you were and not get caught. Y'all's expectations did not line up. When expectations are not met, it causes hurt. It causes pain. It causes frustration. Now, with that being said, it is not wrong to have expectations. It's not a bad thing to have expectations. As a spouse, my wife can expect me not to go out on dates with other women and not to build relationships that are very close with other women because we are in a, in a covenant marriage. We are bound together. She can legitimately have those expectations on me. You as a church can have an expectation on me as your pastor that when Sunday morning rolls around, I'm going to be prepared once I get up into this pulpit. If I just stood up here and just kind of randomly started flipping around my Bible and say, oh, what do you want to talk about this morning? I don't have anything prepared. I would not meet your expectations. And in the same way, God has expectations on our life. When the Bible says, God gives us commandments in the Bible, and He says, um, don't lie. That is an expectation that God has on our life. That God has an expectation that we are walking in honesty and truth, and we're not lying or defrauding people. Expectations are not bad things. We just have to make sure that our expectations are first God-honoring, second, fair and reasonable, And third, seasoned with grace. So as we have expectations, first we need to make sure that they either come from Scripture or they're expectations that that, that glorify and honor God in our relationships. Secondly, we need to make sure those expectations are fair and reasonable, that we don't have uh, expectations that no one can meet or that no one can live up to. And, And third, when people fail our expectations, that we can show grace and mercy in the midst of that. Now, I'm kind of running through that because we're going to look at that again towards the end. But I just want us to kind of understand that as we look at expectations, just some of the the parameters that our expectations really need to fit in. Now, before we jump into the passage, I want us to take a, a look real fast at Mark so far because there's a transition that happened last week that we talked about. And I want to show you kind of some of the ways that it transitions the rest of the book. When I preach, especially on Sunday mornings, I like preaching through an entire book where we go through verse by verse. When I study and read the Bible, that's how I read. I pick a book and I go through verse by verse. And I think there's value to that. I think there's an importance to that. And and I want us to see that really quickly uh, so far. Now, 
Last week in verse 29, uh, Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, Peter made the declaration that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. If you remember, Jesus said, who do the people say that I am? And, and they said, some say that you're uh, John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah or one of the prophets. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are God's, uh, um, God's anointed one here to bring redemption for the people of Israel. That's who you are. That's what God has sent you for. That is your purpose. And he makes this declaration. And from this point, I told you last week that we see a transition of how he treats the disciples. But we also see a transition really of the entire book of the book of Mark. Listen to this. Or check this out. All right. I'm going to go through each chapter so far to where we're at in chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be in verses 31 through 33. I don't know if I said that, uh, but we'll be in verses 31 through 33. So, so far, up to verse 30 of Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 1, here's some of the miracles that Jesus does. He casts out demons. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. It says that he heals many sick and possessed, and he heals a leper. And it tells us that people marveled at his power and at his teaching. In chapter 2, he heals a paralytic, and it says that people are amazed. Chapter 3, he heals a man with a withered hand, and he casts out demons out of people. Chapter 4, he calms a storm with his mouth, uh, and the disciples marveled and feared at his power. Chapter 5, he casts out demons into the herd of pigs. Uh, he heals the woman with the issue of blood. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, and it tells us after he casts the demons into the herd of pigs that everyone marveled. You're seeing a theme here. Chapter 6, he feeds 5,000, and he walks on water, and he heals many sick. Chapter 7, he casts out the demon from the woman's daughter, and he heals the deaf man, and it says that people are astonished. Chapter 8, all the way through verse 30, he feeds 4,000 people, and he heals the blind man. Now, in that, we see Jesus performing a lot of miracles, and we see, and we see people's responses. They are marveled. They are amazed. They say, who is this guy that can command the waves? Who is this that teaches like this? Who is this that has authority to even cast out demons? There is just this, this marveling over the power of Jesus. Now, if you remember, so far we've talked about whenever there's been a miracle, there's a reason behind the miracle. Jesus doesn't just perform miracles willy-nilly or at the flip of a hat. Uh, or uh, Jesus performs miracles for a purpose to show that I am the Messiah. I'm telling you all these things. The miracles back up what he's doing. So we've got all these miracles. In the first half of the book of Mark, Mark records 15 specific miracles, and at least three times it says that he healed many sick, or he cast out many demons as the crowds were gathering around him. So 15 specific miracles, and at least three times, I might have missed one or two, at least three times where the crowds were gathered around him, and he was performing a lot of miracles, healing a lot of sick, and casting out, casting out, out a, lot, a lot of demons. Then... That declaration happens, that, 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 that proclamation from Peter happens where he declares and says, you are the Christ. And after that point, up until the resurrection, Jesus heals or casts out one demon in Mark chapter 9, and in Mark chapter 10, he heals one person. And Mark doesn't record another miracle in the rest of his book. All of those miracles, all that stuff Jesus was doing was moving the people, especially the disciples, to the point of recognizing who he was. 
He wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just another prophet. He wasn't someone risen from the dead. He was the Messiah. He was God's anointed one. He was God in the flesh coming to bring about redemption. That's who he was. And once they got that, once they realized that, then the rest of the book, especially his interaction with the disciples, changes. And it changes to no longer telling them who he is, but changes to tell them what he expects out of their life. How they are to live. How they are to to, to minister. Because these are the men that Jesus is pouring into so they can go out and the church is going to start not on, on, their, on their testimony. It starts on, on, on the gospel, but because they are going out. They are the first missionaries, the first pastors that, that, that God uses to grow the church. And so the first half of the book of Mark, God, Jesus is doing all of this stuff to get them to understand who he is. And once it finally clicks, it changes everything else about the book. In the same way, once we realize who Jesus is, and once we make that, that proclamation, that declaration with our life, that we recognize that He is the Christ, and we are desperate for Him, and we need Him, then it changes our life. The expectations of our life changes. Who we are changed. How we live changes. Just like in this book, everything up to this point was showing them who He was, and everything after this is showing them how to live and what to expect once He's gone Jesus works in our life until we come to the point of recognizing who He is, and then He continues to work. He just works in a very different way. It's important to understand the, the, the passages that we're reading in context. And, and when you just jump around and skip around, I'm going to read this chapter today, and then uh, tomorrow I'm going to read this chapter in the New Testament, and I'll jump back to the Old Testament the next day. You miss out on just seeing the big pictures of what God is doing in these stories and in these books. So, many sermon over, but it's always good to read things as books in context. So, there's this transition that happens in the life of the disciples. Now, here's where we're going to look at expectations. Understand that as Jews, the disciples had expectations on what the Messiah was going to be on what He had come to do, and on who He was. They expected the Messiah to be God's anointed one to bring redemption to the Israelites. They expected a political Messiah is what they expected. They expected a political Savior. They expected someone to come in and free them from the bondage of the Romans and to give them their own country again and to let them be the chief and the greatest country in the world. That's what they expected. That's what the Messiah was coming to do. Now, what we're going to see is there's a difference in their expectations and Jesus' expectations. Because Jesus did come as the Messiah. He did come to bring redemption. He did come to establish His kingdom, just not on earth. Not yet. That'll be later. Jesus came to establish His kingdom in the hearts of men. Jesus came to establish that kingdom of heaven, that kingdom of God, where He makes us His citizens once we become His at the point of salvation. And our life and our future and our hope is set somewhere different. There will come a time when He will set up an earthly kingdom. In fact, we'll look at that tonight if you want to come back. We're talking about the end times. If you want to come back tonight, we'll look at that. But this morning, Jesus came to set up first a heavenly kingdom before He comes back to set up His earthly kingdom. Here's where their expectations aren't lining up. The disciples expected one thing. Jesus said, I've come to do something different. So, let's read Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. We'll pray, and then we'll kind of work our way through these verses. It says, and he began to teach them. Now, this is right after they make that that proclamation. So, the way this reads is, is... 
They said, you are the Christ. Uh, and he begins to teach them right after that. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. We love you. We thank you that you speak through your word. We thank you that your word is living and active because you speak through it. Father God, I pray now as we look at your word that you would speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would meet us where we're at. And God, that you would uh, speak through your word and the Holy Spirit louder than my voice ever could. Uh, to you be the glory. And we pray that you would work and that you would be honored. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right. So the first thing that we see in verse 31 is that Jesus came with a purpose. So verse 31, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. So once they understood who he was, Jesus begins to teach them what he had come to do. Now they understand that he's the Messiah. Now they understand that he's the Christ. Now he's saying, okay, now this is why I've come. And he says that he's going to be betrayed. He says that he's going to be rejected. He says that he's going to be uh, rejected by the leaders and the authorities of the, of the nation of Israel. And he's eventually going to be killed and to rise again three days later. Now remember, their expectation was that he was going to come in as the political uh, king, savior, warrior. Uh, not that he was going to come and to die. But Jesus came with a purpose. Jesus came not just to, uh, to set up a, a, a castle and a political regime. Jesus came because He loved man. Jesus came because God the Father loves man. God, Jesus came because it was God's plan that Jesus Christ would come to die for the sins, uh, to show God's love to the world, to die for our sins, that if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, that we could be called His. That we could be adopted into His family. He came with a purpose. And what's, what's neat is, is that Jesus understood this purpose from day one. Jesus did not just uh, live his life as a regular guy. And once he turned 30, he became woke to whatever God's plan was for him. No, God knew, or Jesus knew his plans. He knew why God had sent him. From the time he stepped out of heaven to the time that he went back into heaven, he was well aware of everything that God had called him and purposed him to do. Jesus came with a purpose. Now, it is an awesome and loving thing that Jesus knowingly came with a purpose. Understand, as he's talking to his disciples, he's telling them, look, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. He knows what's happening. He knows that when he's on that cross, he's taking the sins of, of, of mankind on himself. He knows that he's taking the sins of those who would one day uh, turn to him and trust him as their Lord and Savior on himself so that they could be uh, forgiven so that they could be redeemed. He knows that the Father is going to turn His back on Him. He understands and knows everything that is going to happen to Him, and yet He still came to do it. It is an awesome, loving thing that Jesus Christ, knowing everything that was going to happen to Him, knowing the purpose 100% that He would die, that He would suffer, that He would take our wrath that we deserved upon Himself, and yet He still came. That is love. He wasn't tricked into coming. 
God didn't give him half the story and then later spring it on him. Oh yeah, you're going to have to die on the cross. Jesus knew. Yet he still loved us and he still came and he still died. So next in verse 32, we see that Peter's poor expectations led to sin and foolishness on his part. So verse 32 says, And he, being Jesus, said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Remember, they had different expectations on what the Messiah was going to be. Peter believed that the Messiah was going to be this political savior, this political warrior. And here Jesus is, Jesus saying, look, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. I think it's interesting, a couple of things. One, before we even get to Peter, it tells us that Jesus said this plainly. Once again, Jesus was not covering anything up. Jesus was not hiding this. Jesus was not telling them in a parable that was somewhat confusing. Jesus very plainly and bluntly said, this is what will happen. And when Peter hears this, when Peter hears what Jesus is saying, when Peter hears the things that Jesus is saying is going to happen to him, Peter takes him aside and begins to tell him that he's wrong. Peter takes aside and begins to tell him that that can't happen. Peter takes him aside and it says he begins to rebuke him. Now, why did Peter do this? Here's what I believe. I believe Peter loved Jesus. For Peter, the, the, the thought that Jesus was going to die was, was something that, that he probably had a tough time fathoming. I believe Peter was convicted that Jesus really was the Messiah. He's the one that made that declaration. He was convinced Jesus was the Messiah. And if Jesus was the Messiah, there is no way the Messiah could die. Because remember, his expectations were off. He expected that political Messiah, that earthly Messiah. Jesus came for a different reason. And so because of his love, because of his conviction, and honestly because of a little arrogance on his part, he knew more than Jesus. He knew better than Jesus. Jesus had to be wrong. Peter was going to tell him why he was wrong. Peter pulls him aside and, and, and begins to rebuke him, begins to call him out. Now, it's never a good thing to tell Jesus that he's wrong. He's God. He's perfect. He knows everything. Typically, not, not typically, I'm sorry. Every single time, if there's a disagreement between me and God, God's right and I'm wrong. The problem is, they had different expectations. They had different views of what was going to happen. They had different views of, of what, what needed to happen and what should have happened. And Peter's expectations were wrong. Peter's expectations were flawed. Peter's expectation caused him to do a very silly and foolish things because they did not line up with God. Peter goes from one moment confessing that Jesus is the Messiah and the next moment telling him that he is wrong about what he is saying. But here's where we, we need to realize we are Peter. We can go from confessing Jesus' greatness one minute and struggling in our understanding and actions the next minute. The reason why we need grace, to, to show other people grace, why we need grace ourselves, is because we are just as flawed as Peter. Look, understand, the other 12 disciples had been with Jesus this whole time, and yet Peter was the only one who said, you are the Christ. Now, maybe everyone else believed it. Maybe they all were on board, but Peter was the only one that vocalized it. That was a huge, bold step for Peter to say, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And he said what was right. That was accurate. That was true. That was good. 
And yet then the next moment, Peter's struggling with his flesh. He's struggling with his pride. He's struggling with his selfishness and his self-centeredness. He's struggling in his understanding. You and I do the same thing. We can love God and praise God and declare how great He is. And then yet an hour later, 30 minutes later, the way this reads, five minutes later, we can be struggling in our sin. We can be struggling in our weaknesses. We can be struggling in our flaws. Goes back to Jesus' purpose. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came because you and I are sinners. Jesus came because we desperately need salvation. Jesus came because what we see right here with Peter, we are weak. We are walking contradictions sometimes. Yes, we love God, but we still have that flesh that we fight after, that we fight against. And sometimes we lose that battle. Sometimes our expectations are wrong. Sometimes the way we view things, what Jesus is about to tell Peter, sometimes the way we view life, the way we view things is off and it's skewed and it's messed up. And yet God still loves us. Jesus still loves us. Look, the Bible tells us that God knows all things. Isaiah says that he declared the end from the beginning. What that means is before God even created the world, before he created mankind, he knows everything that happens until time ends. Jesus is, or God is eternal. God has no limits. God is not bound by time. God knows all things. There's nothing hidden from God. Jesus is God, so therefore he shares the same characteristics and qualities that God the Father has. So Jesus knows the same thing. Jesus died on the cross to save you and me, knowing that even once he paid that penalty, knowing that even once we place our faith and trust in him, we would not be perfect until we got to heaven. So even now in this life, Jesus knows that we're still going to struggle, that we're still going to fall short, that we're still going to mess up, yet he still died for us. He still gave his life. And he even tells us in John, 1 John chapter 1 that anyone who says they are without sin makes God to be a liar. That what we need to do is confess our sins and trust that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You and I in this story, we line up with Peter. We struggle. We mess up and we're not perfect. The goal is to make sure that how we view life is is changing and shifting from how our expectations and how we think things should work is being changed to line up with what God thinks and with what God wants. So that leads us to verse 33. Poor expectations are often driven by, by selfishness or a flawed perspective. So here's what happens in verse 33. It says, but turning and seeing his disciples. So he's talking to Peter. Remember, Peter pulled him off to the side. He sees the rest of the disciples. He wants everyone to hear this. He rebuked Peter and said, get, me behind, or get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now understand, God is not calling, or Jesus is not calling Peter Satan. What he's calling is the, the, the things that, that Peter is saying, this declaration that Peter is saying, where he's rebuking Jesus, that's what is satanic. The fact that he's telling Jesus that he cannot perform why he came, that that is wrong. That he's telling God, that's the idea that is satanic there, because it is against God. He's not calling Peter Satan himself. But he rebukes Peter, says, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is Paul or Peter's problem. Peter's problem is that the perspective that he's looking at is his own perspective. His expectations are based on what he wants. His expectations are based on what he thinks should happen. His expectations are based on his wisdom and on his perspective of the world. And here's God saying, look, my expectations are this. 
And your expectations are this. Jesus is saying, look, you're not looking at this from God's perspective, but from man's perspective. And to be honest with you, our perspective is flawed because we're flawed. Our perspective is, is, is short-sighted because we're short-sighted. Our perspective is, is imperfect because you and I, we're not perfect. So Peter's looking at his life. He's looking at Jesus as the Messiah. He's looking with these expectations. And Jesus says, look, your problem is that you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're looking at this. Instead of looking at this, how would God look at this? Or what is God saying? You're saying, this is what I'm saying. And my expectations are what I want trump what you want, Jesus. So Jesus calls him out very strongly, very boldly, very bluntly. It's not because he hates Peter. It's not because he doesn't love Peter anymore. It's because he wants Peter to understand and the other disciples that what Peter is saying is way, way, way off base. And so he is very bluntly, very honestly making a very strong declaration to Peter saying, look, you're wrong. And you're wrong because your expectations. You're wrong because how you're looking at the, the perspective that is guiding your vision is flawed and it is off. Instead of looking at things the way God does, you're looking at things the way man does. Instead of looking at things the way God is and and surrendering that and submitting to that and saying, God, you're perfect, I'm going to trust you. You're saying, God, I know you say this, but this is what I think. And so I I think that I know better than you. Ultimately, that's what Peter's doing. Jesus, you're wrong. I know better than you. When we tell God no uh, to his commandments, we're saying, God, I know better than you. Because we look at things from a flawed and human perspective. Now, how do we apply this? What are the truths of this passage? What are the the application points that we get from this passage? One, Jesus came with a purpose to die and rise again to pay the penalty for our sins. The first truth that we need to walk away from this passage is that Jesus Christ came to die for mankind. That Jesus Christ came and the gospel is the center point of, of what we do and of what we believe and of how we live. Remember, Jesus Christ, they finally understood that he was the Messiah. They make this proclamation. And the first thing that he begins to talk to them about is the gospel. That he is going to die and rise again for our sins. Jesus came with a purpose, and the purpose of the church is to continue this story, is to continue this purpose, to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Whether that's inviting them to church and allowing them to hear it from the pulpit, whether that's sitting down with them and opening up your Bible and sharing them through the book of Romans, uh, uh, how we are sinners and we need a Savior and Jesus Christ died for us, whether it's passing out a tract to someone, whether it's showing someone that you love them and you're praying for them consistently time and time and time again until God does a work in their life, God's expectation on our life is to take the truth of the gospel and to share it with other people to live it out, to share it, and also to apply it to our own lives. We need grace day in and day out. I need grace from, from y'all, from my spouse, but most importantly, I need grace from God. And God, thankfully, freely bestows His grace without limit. So the first thing that we need to walk away with is Jesus came with a purpose, to die and rise again, to pay the penalty for our sins. Secondly, one of our goals in life is to strive to see things from God's perspective Instead of our own. God, or Jesus told Peter that he saw things uh, from man's perspective. Or from the, the mind of man and not the mind of God. As believers, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, God has an expectation on us that how we view life, how we view the world, how we view our interactions with other people, how we view other people, is changing to where 
We're looking at things less and less like a sinful human being and more and more the way God would, would want us to look at things. That how we view problems in our life, how we view conflicts with other people, how we view how we treat other people, how we view how we treat our spouse, how we view how we work as employees, how we view how we, as we treat our children, that it is changing and it is moving from how I think things should do to lining up to what God thinks things should do. Now understand, that doesn't happen overnight. You don't go from being someone who does not know God, being saved, and all of a sudden everything in our life completely lines up. It takes time. It takes growth. It takes spending time in God's Word. It takes spending time in prayer. It takes letting God... uh, In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me read this. I don't have it marked, but I think I can get there pretty quickly. It says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's what Jesus is talking about as he talks to Peter. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't look at this from man's perspective, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Look at this from God's perspective. As we spend time in God's Word, as we spend time in prayer, as we spend time with other believers encouraging one another and challenging one another, then God begins to change and shape our minds. He changes how we think at things. He changes how we look at things. He changes everything about who we are. So we're no longer being conformed to the sinful world around us, but we are being transformed so that we see see things and live things in a way that glorify and honor God. If we are God's children, that is one of the goals of our life, that our perspective is being transitioned to not being an earthly human perspective, but a heavenly God-centered perspective. Next, we must understand that expectations impact our reality daily. Daily. What your expectations are impacts your day. It impacts your relationships with other people. Let me just go through a couple of things. Our expectations can impact our faith. If we're spending time with God in His Word and in prayer, and God is shifting our expectations, then do we understand more of what God expects us to, to believe? We understand what God expects us to do. We understand what God expects us, who He expects us to be and how we are to live. And our expect, or, or, or we're being changed and, and our faith has grown. But if we have unrealistic or wrong or false expectations when it comes to our faith, then that can greatly impact our faith. Let me tell you a story about a young man that... Uh, I'd gone to a church as a student pastor. They had already had this guy on staff. He was a, a, an intern uh, with the youth ministry. And um, within a couple of months, uh, he left. One of his friends left the church, and so he left. And after he left, they went to another church. He began to, con- he, he still struggled with, with sin. He, he was human. Uh, he still gave into temptation sometimes. He still was not perfect. And so he really struggled with this idea of, why am I sinning if I love God? Or why am I still struggling with temptation if God loves me? And instead of going to Scripture and allowing God to, to transition His mind and to shape His expectations, His expectations were, if I really love God, I shouldn't ever mess up anymore. And ultimately what that did was it destroyed his faith. And he's now an, an agnostic or an atheist because he had unrealistic expectations. His expectations were not set on God's Word. They were set on, I don't know where he got it from, but they were set on something other than God's Word. And it impacted his faith to a, to a terrible degree. 
So your expectations can impact your faith. Your expectations can impact your, your understanding of God's Word. They impact your prayers. Look, if you think that God can still work and God still moves, then guess what? That's going to impact how you pray for people. It's going to impact uh, uh, if you think God still heals and God still saves, which He does. Then it's going to impact how you pray. If you don't think that He does, then you're not going to pray for people. Just how things work. And if you're not praying for people, chances are you really don't think that God's going to do anything. And so God, or our expectations impact our faith. Our expectations impact our family. Like I said, I've dealt with people pre-marriage counseling and post-marriage counseling that have issues because they have different expectations for what their relationship should look like, for what their role should be, for who should do what, for how they should be treated. The same way you've got to have expectations as you parent your children. You and your, your spouse have to be on the same page. If you don't have a spouse and you're a single parent, then you have expectations on how you expect your children to, 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 to act and, and how you expect them to grow and how you expect them to behave. We have expectations impact everything about our day. And whether those expectations are met or not, impact us greatly. And so with that in mind, we close out with this. We have to make sure that our expectations are first God-honoring, second fair and reasonable, and third seasoned with grace. So we need to ask ourselves first, are our expectations set on God's Word and the things that are important to God? That should be our first criteria when we look at the expectations that we have on other people, the expectations that we have on our life, the expectations that we have in our faith. Are they based on God's Word? Are they based on things that honor and glorify God? Because if they're not, then we're setting up unhealthy expectations. Second, are your expectations realistic and explained? If you have an expectation with your spouse on how y'all think your life should be, have y'all discussed that? And are your expectations realistic? Are your expectations based on what God says a husband and a wife should be? Or are your expectations based on Disney movies and Sleepless in Seattle? What are your expectations based on, on on how your relationship should go? Because that impacts greatly how you relate to each other as spouses. Or in a family or with your children. Are they fairy tales or are they reality? And have you talked about them? And then thirdly, do we show grace to others when our expectations are not met? I cannot perfectly meet my wife's expectations. And it's not because they're too lofty or too high. It's because I'm not a perfect person. I cannot perfectly meet y'all's expectations that you have for me as a pastor. And it's not because your expectations are too lofty or too high, because I'm not a perfect person. I can't meet the expectations my children have of me as a father perfectly, because I'm not a perfect person. Because of that, I'm desperately in need of grace. From my wife, from my children, from you, ultimately from God. In the same way... No one can perfectly live up to my expectations because no one else is perfect. And so I have to be willing to show grace when someone does not meet those expectations, even if they're good, even if they're biblical, even if they're God-centered and God-honoring and God-glorifying, I've still got to be able to show, or show grace when those expectations are not met. Without grace, failed expectations leave us hurt and disillusioned and frustrated. Grace brings forgiveness. Grace brings peace. Grace brings unification and unity and love and compassion. Do we show grace when our expectations are not met? Expectations are a powerful thing. 
And expectations are ultimately, they're a good thing. But expectations have to be shaped by God's Word. They have to be realistic and fair. And they've got to be seasoned with grace. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus with a purpose to come and to die on the cross for us so that we might have life. Father God, I pray for everyone in this room. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who does not know you as the Lord and Savior, God, as they've heard about the purpose of why Jesus Christ came today, God, if you have touched their heart, God, they would respond in obedience, respond recognizing their need for you. And that this morning could be the time of salvation. Father God, I pray for those in this room, God, who, uh, who do know you. They are your children, but, but God, maybe their relationship with you is off because of of unrealistic expectations or false expectations or anything else. God, I pray, uh, God, that between you and them, there could be confession, there could be repentance, there could be um, whatever needs to be happening. Wisdom, guidance, direction. Father God, I pray for the relationships out here, God, whether it be spouse or children and parents or whether it be bosses, whether it be friends or the body of Christ. God, if there have been unmet, unexpected, or unmet expectations and there have been hard feelings or hurt feelings, God, I pray that there could be grace. God, that we could forgive each other, that we could show the same grace and forgiveness that you've shown us, that we could love people and love each other because that's what your desire, that's what your expectation on us is. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.